Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Hagliano, who is back from Virginia. Welcome back, Frank. David, I'm back. You're back. I'm back. And uh, sorry, we've been delayed, listeners, for much longer than we expected for all kinds of reasons that we won't go into here and aren't all that important to you, but uh, we, we are back. And yes. I'm sorry for our, our uh, unintended gap in episodes for those of you who've been waiting. Life has intervened in a variety of complicated ways, yeah. and, and uh, we, we uh, thank you for your indulgence and patience in getting this episode out. Yes, if any of you are still listening, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Both of you still listening, thank you. We really appreciate it. Um, right, so one of the uh, big news uh, items uh, in the past few weeks uh, has been the uh, Senate race in Pennsylvania, uh, which uh, posits uh, the current Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman uh, against uh, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz from TV. And one of the big issues in the campaigns in recent weeks has been Fetterman's health. He had a stroke uh, last May, um, and he has been recovering from that. Uh, that has caused him to have some auditory processing issues and other uh, uh, speaking uh, challenges as a consequence of his stroke uh, that manifested themselves first in an interview on NBC News and then in a debate um, with, with Oz uh, earlier this week. And the Oz campaign has made Fetterman's health a big issue in the campaign. Uh, so we thought we would see if we can provide some historical context for this race and for the health of politicians being uh, of 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 issue uh, in campaigns and and more broadly. Yeah, we did an episode a while ago that some of you might remember on presidential mm-hmm. health and how health affects um, uh, presidents. But I think this is a slight. We have a slightly different approach today, yeah. uh, where we want to talk about. Health is a political issue. Yeah, I think. Judge, are the, does the health of a president do, is there are a separate set of standards, Frank? Do you think than than for a senator or for some other political office? I think so. I think it gets more attention, and and we the president is the commander in chief of the armed forces of the United States. Presidents are, you know, it comes up every at every election cycle about the the, the mythical three a.m. Mm. phone call, etc. So I think that presidential health. Um, is probably seen in a slightly, I mean, I think it, it will, is, is a slightly different order of magnitude, right, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the issues are similar, but I think that there, there is a slightly different category. Can I, before we go, though, or mm. uh, before we really get started, mm. David, um, some listeners will be aware that the Philadelphia Phillies are in the World Series. Yes. Uh, and this is a kind of Cinderella story. I'm asking a serious, I was thinking about this in terms of the episode, well, the World Series starts tonight, but we were recording the ep- this episode today. How do we think, if at all, the Phillies World Series run will affect the uh, Senate race in Philadelphia, uh, in Pennsylvania? And by well, me, I don't know. I mean, I mean, how do you think? I, that's, a, that's not a question I had anticipated. Um, Sorry. It, well, it's well, the not, question is, I mean, you know, since Oz lives in New, New Jersey, he well, may not even really, you know, <laughs> cheer for the home team. Or maybe, you know, maybe he's a Mets probably fan. Probably a Yankee fan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, who knows? Well, I'm sure we can find images of him in a in a Yankees cap from whenever. Um, yeah, I think that that's an interesting intersection. And the question is then is how does the how do the Phillies play this actually? Because I think they have to be cognizant of not alienating their fans who may have very passionate feelings about the election. Um, and Fetterman is from Western Pennsylvania, mm, so he's probably a Pirates, Pirates fan. fan. Yes. Um, but for those of you who are not paying attention to <laughs> yeah. this election, some of you may be paying attention to baseball, but for those of you not paying, this is a fascinating election because the, the candidates are 
unusual, I, one might say. You know, Fetterman is doesn't look like you would imagine the your average Democratic He's candidate. He's six foot eight. He's six foot eight. He wears a hoodie for almost everything except for the the debate. He uh, he he has tattoos. He he looks more like a. I'm not sure what he, he looks like. Some you you wouldn't see if you saw him on a motorcycle or working in a garage somewhere. You would not be surprised. And that was a big part of his, or has been a big part of his identity. And this is where the stroke actually uh, could be an issue because the stroke and the the um, difficulties he's having expressing himself mm. as a consequence of that, at least for the time being, have kind of challenge that image and uh, or or ha- or has it uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I, and, and, and by comparison oz has this sort of reputation as a tv doctor you know he had an ad that he filmed in a grocery store about uh crudités and what have you so, so it's a very bizarre mix of candidates um and, and uh, oz has been supported by the trump people and so there's some it's a Interesting race in and of itself, above and beyond this. But the impact of the stroke on Fetterman, mm. I think, apart from the questions it raises, mm. and this is the main theme we're going to be uh, kind of investigating today, I think, really benefits Oz in certain ways because, of course, Oz's strength is, guy's been on TV, he's a bit like mm. Trump, he's been on TV for 20 plus years. This is a guy who's very, very facile and quick on his feet with words. Hmm. Uh, he's, he's got a lot wrong in this campaign. He said some things that are bizarre, and as you, you allude to, he's had some strange uh, ads. The one where he was in the supermarket was particularly humorous. Um, but Oz is a smooth-talking guy, hmm. and Fetterman, who's got this quite pronounced physical presence, now, having suffered this stroke, is not at the moment a very smooth-talking guy, mm. and, and that contrast is quite striking. So so I think the uh, Fetterman's condition has really um, uh, underscored the contrast with, with Mehmet Oz. I think that's, I think that's right. Um, I think, you know, even before the stroke, the, the debate probably would have played to Oz's advantage, but I think this is even more pronounced after this. So, Frank, how did... Disability factor into to the political lives of people in the early republic and the revolutionary generation and afterwards. Uh, I've got to confess, David, I don't have a lot of expertise in this area. I'm encouraged, however, and hopefully we'll be speaking to this individual soon. Uh, that I have a new PhD student who I won't name at this point because I've not asked them uh, to if I could mention them. Um, who's working on this very topic. So mm. this individual who's just started has a really promising project on um, looking at the language of disability and politics in the early republic. And their very, very preliminary argument is that there wasn't as much of a language, one that there was a rhetoric about um, disabilities, mm. using uh, insults, for example, or about people's uh, physical limitations. Um, in the early republic, but also that the politics was, was a bit more inclusive in certain ways because um, we the, the kind of categories of disability that we, we now have didn't didn't prevail at that point. They are just beginning, so I don't want to really I don't want to. Okay. They can speak much more about this than, than I can. Probably the most famous politician with a disability in this period, in my period, mm. was Gouverneur Morris. Gouverneur Morris, who's a kind of... Um, he's a, the financier of the revolution. Yeah, and he's um, 
Uh, well, that's Robert Morris. Oh, sorry. That's Robert Morris. Uh, Wrong but Morris. Gouverneur Morris is a, is a really, he's quite an important diplomat and political figure. Uh, he uh, had a very bad carriage accident while he was attending the Second Continental Congress mm. and ended up having his leg amputated below the knee. Um, and, and so Gouverneur Morris is a very famous um, uh, disabled politician mm. in, the, uh, in the revolutionary and early national period. But we don't have as many, I mean, not as many come to mind as I think in your period, in large part because of the Civil War, yes, I guess. Yes, yes. So, so, so well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, so, so the Civil War, I think, you know, mass disabling events, you know, the Civil War did lead to a whole generation of people who have both physical and, and invisible wounds. So we do have lots of, of, of amputees, um, some of whom end up running for, for office and some of whom get, end up getting elected. Uh, there's a, a guy for the name of, of, of Roswell Bishop who has a, an arm amputated, for instance, who gets elected for six terms in the House. We have lots of guys who have been shot and, and having been wounded in the war as a way of sort of demonstrating your uh, sort of masculinity and, you know, the fact that you were willing to put your life on the line for the Union. Um, but you also have lots of guys who are suffering from invisible disabilities uh, that, that they're wrestling with and, and, and who are trying to keep knowledge of those invisible disabilities private. Probably the best example of this is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, um, famous for being a college professor who then uh, joins the 20, leads the 20th Maine and then goes on to be governor of Maine uh, for a number of years. Uh, he's wounded a bunch of times, I think six times in the Civil War. Um, and he uses the, his his military service as being a, a credential for for holding office. Uh, but one of the wounds that he gets that he doesn't talk about, he gets wounded uh, at Petersburg. He has a shot uh, that goes through both of his hips and goes through his bladder and leads to all kinds of long-lasting, um, very painful infections. And he has surgeries throughout the rest of his life to sort of remedy. Uh, that injury uh, and has all kinds of consequences for his reproductive health uh, and, and, and other kinds of, of issues. Uh, there's a really great article by Sarah Hanley Cousins that I assigned to my students about his injury that you can always tell when the students have read it and haven't read it because um, there's some pretty gruesome stuff in there about, about what uh, the consequences, especially the male students when they, when they read it and they're like, ooh, it's kind of painful to read. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, so I think there is a, a distinction that's, that's drawn between sort of the, the visible injuries and invisible injuries. Um, and, uh, you know, there are sort of questions about, you know, can a, a man who has been injured in war, can he provide for his family? Can he be, um, you know, fully able of serving his country without the full use of his, of his, uh, of his body? Uh, at least as before. Um, so there, there are debates and questions about this throughout the late 19th century. They go into questions about the pension, and the pension is the big uh, issue, um, one of the big political issues in the late 19th century because it is one of the major sources of government uh, out uh, funding. Um, and you know, the pension is very much tied to questions about disability and about can you you know, uh, provide for your family, can you provide for yourself, and, and does the government owe you recompense for your injuries that led to that but do we get david because the civil war mm. is such a mass event 
and mm. so many people and so many people, but particularly men are mm. involved in yes. this and wounded uh, as a consequence. Mm. Um, it would be almost impossible to have politics without um, individuals who were affected in some way um, oh, to be sure. in the war. Uh, as a consequence, is there a greater... Does it lead to an age of enlightenment when it comes to disability? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I think there there is a, a a there's a level of public pity for wounded Civil War veterans, uh, but I'm not sure it extends to to uh, necessarily a broader acceptance of disability. Um, I mean, it partially depends on the nature of the wounds that people have, um, and, and and sort of their ability to sort of speak about them in public. It depends in part whether the wounds are are visible. I think. Um, you know, somebody who has been shot in the war, that's one thing, but, you know, depending on how you're shot, what consequence, like the Chamberlain case, I think, reveals, um, you know, the, 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 there are parts of his story that he talked about publicly a lot, and there are parts of the story that he kept very, very private. Um, and I think that sort of reflected, um, you know, lots of discussions about health in the 19th century. There, were, You know, we, can, we talked in our episode on presidential health, for instance, um, Grover Cleveland has a major surgery when he's president, and he goes to great lengths to disguise uh, that illness. Um, and obviously, when we get to the sort of finish your thoughts. Oh, I was just thinking. Obviously, when we get to the the twentieth century, right? You know, FDR goes through enormous lengths to to hide his his the the his his disabilities from polio uh, and his use of a wheelchair. I mean, the, we only have a handful of photos of him in a wheelchair, and that's in large part because he was very cognizant of maintaining a public image of as somebody who had conquered polio or whatever it is that he, whatever phrasing that he used to describe his, his relationship with his own health. One figure that occurs to me between your period and my mm. period who's quite important is Andrew Jackson. Mm. And I had an MSc student earlier this mm. summer who made a pretty convincing case in, in their dissertation that... Jackson had PTSD mm. as a result of his experiences during the Revolutionary War. During the Revolutionary War, mm. he was a young boy, but he was, he was an early teen, but he was actually yeah. caught up in combat there and then was beaten by a British officer at one point. Um, and, of course, Jackson, owing to one of his, the duels he fought, had a bullet in him. Yeah. Uh, so, so and, and so, Andrew, this... this student made a pretty good case that sort of some of the things we condemn Andrew Jackson for, rightly I would say, <laughs> yes. um, uh, uh, may have been a result or may have been exacerbated by um, the f consequences of, of his earlier experience. So he, and, and this student made a pretty strong case and, and he actually looked mm -hmm. at the kind of clinical definitions for, for post-traumatic stress disorder and things. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't just kind of doing it as a rhetorical turn. Uh, made a pretty good case for that, so I don't know um, well, what you think of that. Well, I mean, it's tricky to, you can't diagnose yeah, someone who's been dead for 200 years. Um, one of the things you are seeing in the post-Civil War era is a tremendous growth in the number of veterans who are ending up in um, what were then called insane asylums, mental health facilities that were being built and expanded in, in the post-Civil War period. And there was some understanding that there was a connection between military service and, and mental health, but exactly what that connection was and sort of the mechanisms 
before that in a pre-Freudian world were, were profoundly limited. Um, so they, you know, they were very much struggling with how to how do you deal with uh, issues of of mental health. Um, you know, and then the question then of of you know the categories that were used in the nineteenth century for for um, disabilities, I think, are different than the categories we would use today. I think they recognized. Uh, physical disabilities, they recognized, you know, blindness and hard people who are hard of hearing and these other kinds of limitations. Um, but their, their framework for mental health, I think, was very, very different than ours in the relationship between physical health and mental health. I think it, it was also, and they, they're using different frameworks, you know, the ways in which they fit in ideas about addiction into their conceptions of what health is and how health worked, um, I think is also different than ours. Um, so I'm somewhat apprehensive about applying modern labels to 19th century phenomenon because it's sometimes hard to, to match up those two things. But what you're suggesting, I think, um, is still relevant today, and mm. the Fetterman case raises this, that there's that, that voters, because we want to talk about mm. this with regard to, to, to politics mm. uh, through time, voters draw a distinction between a visible physical disability hmm. and either issues of mental health or where there may be cognitive injuries or cognitive impairment of some kind. Is that I, fair to say? I, so so the heroic kind of former Civil War soldier who's got an empty sleeve because he lost his arm at Chickamauga yes. is patriotic and probably a figure of admiration and I really probably actually works yes. quite well electorally. Whereas somebody who might have, and you're right, we can't diagnose over mm. the course of 150 years, but somebody who might have been suffering from PTSD mm. in the aftermath of the Civil War, much less sympathetic figure. Uh, However, and so, sorry, I'll let yeah, you speak. Yeah, I apologize, yeah, yeah, David. Yeah. We haven't done this for a while. <laughs> uh, However, I still think that that kind of uh, voters today are making a similar distinction. I'm not sure we've evolved all that much from the from our 19th century forebears. Um, well, I think we, I think in terms of veterans who are, who are 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 wounded, I think we, you're right that they have a very special relationship with and ways in which they are relating to uh, disability. So we can think about. Obviously, Civil War veterans, World War One, or sorry, World War Two veterans. I'm thinking here about like Bob Dole, Daniel Inouye, exactly. Uh, Vietnam, we've got you know, Max Cleland, uh, Bob Carey, John McCain, all of whom have, to various degrees, uh, had um, disabilities from their their military service. Iraq and Afghanistan, Tammy Duckworth, uh, Dan Crenshaw, uh, Brian Mast, uh, all of whom have have, have had very substantial. Uh, War injuries and and uh, got to higher elected office afterwards. The FDR case, though, I think is 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 quite telling, though, because you know I think it does reveal that you know his his um, disability was not military related, and, and he went through a great amount of effort to to project a vision of being healthy and robust despite having had polio. Um, and I think that notion uh, continues actually until the fairly recent past. There was a, a, I read this very strange column by Gary Wills this morning uh, from 1975. 
and he was writing about George Wallace, who was again considering a run for president. George Wallace, I think, is as many of our, our listeners know, was one of the foremost segregationists uh, in the South. He runs for president multiple times, never wins. Um, he, he is shot in 1972 while he's running for president uh, and ends up spending um, the rest of his life in a, in a wheelchair. And Gary Willis argued in 1975 that being in a wheelchair disqualified George Wallace from being qualified for being president. And he argued in that editorial that actually FDR shouldn't have been present because he was in a wheelchair. What was his reasoning? His argument was that FDR was deceiving the American public by hiding his disability. And now, maybe this is a post-Watergate transparency issue. But Wallace wasn't hiding his. Yes. I, I, and I, I, it was unclear about, you know, the, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a particularly long editorial, so it was hard to sort of get at it, but he, he thought that, that this was, this limitation made Wallace unable to be president. Now, the fact that he's pointing to his disability and not to his... Um, White supremacy. Racism. <laughs> he's like, you know, that, that to me would be the more profound thing, but I think that was quite striking that... that, that even in 1975, uh, you know, there are people who are saying, making the argument in, in mainstream media, and, and Gary Wills was a very mainstream, respected columnist. intellectually. Yeah, in, yeah that, that he would make that argument. Um, Gary Wills, not George Will. Yeah, Gary Wills. Right. Um, would make that argument then is it, quite striking. Um, I think one of the things, that obviously, that's happened since then especially with the American with Disabilities Act, is there really has been greater attention to, to, to recognizing that, that people who, who may not, you know, with various kinds of, of disabilities still can be, be very competent and, and excellent public servants. We can think about David Patterson, who was governor of New York, but who was legally blind since birth. We can think about, you know, Greg Abbott as governor of Texas, um, you know, who, uh, my understanding is he had a tree fall on him at some point and then has been in a wheelchair since then from... Um, yeah, he was, uh, I think, 25 years old and he was out jogging and he was injured by a tree And, fall. you know, he's a fairly prominent Republican political figure, but his, his uh, disability has not been, at least as far as I'm aware, an issue in any of his campaigns. Uh, so I think, you know, we, we've come a long way in terms of... of Accepting the the health of, of, of politicians. Yeah, I mean, there's that recent Rutgers study, which mm. we talked about mm. a little bit before we went on the air, um, that showed. I mean, it was a 2019 study, so it is very recent, mm. but, uh, by Rutgers University that showed that one in ten politicians in the United States has a has a disability, um, which is less than the general population. So, right, which so was that one of their findings. Yeah. 15% of the population has a disability. I think it's slightly more than 15%, and 10.3% of elected officials are um, are disabled. They Some interesting findings uh, crop up from that, though. Mm. So um, the vast majority of disabled officials are actually in... Um, Local office, they hold local office, not federal office, which I think is interesting. And they found that um, the demography was quite interesting. So that um, uh, 
the vast majority of office holders who are disabled tend to be um, white men. Now, I think that particularly, uh, and one of the most important categories is, of course, military veterans. Mm. So I think mil if you're a white male military veteran with an injury that has been disabling, again, we're, we're, it's not unlike the post-Civil War mm. period. There were other interesting uh, findings there, too, because there were... Um, uh, a substantial number uh, or higher number than the general population of um, younger disabled people holding office as well as Native Americans. Mm. So, so the, the data is very interesting and the data um, reveals a lot. But as you say, one of the, one of the important takeaways there is that um, uh, the number of disabled uh, people holding political office is actually lower than the number of disabled people in the population at large. Yeah. But those... Uh, so you can think about Madison Cawthorn maybe as falling into that category right. of young uh, people. Yep, that's a good point. He, he is a good, although he's no longer holding office. No, he still is. He still oh, has right. another. He still has another. Uh, I'm not sure he's doing much. Yeah, he's gone quiet, hasn't he? He has. has a, but, yeah. uh, you're right. I apologize for that. So, but but that study is interesting, and of course, I think post-Americans. Mm. That, that's. I think there has been a sea change in the aftermath of the Americans with Disability mm. Act in terms of uh, attitudes uh, towards politicians uh, with disability, um, with disabilities. I still think there might be a distinction that the public is making between um, people with physical disabilities and other types of disability. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I would, I would um, and I think it partially has to do with the, the and I think po politicians are responding to that because they are being less open about their um, mental health struggles maybe than their physical health struggles. There was a poll that was done of members of Congress and only one admitted to having mental health issues. And that was somebody who admitted to having uh, struggled with PTSD as a consequence of military service. So it fits into that military framework. So one out of 535. Yes. Um, now, I mean, the, the, the question then, I think, you know, thinking about how mental health fits into this, there have been a number of uh, important, you know, historical examples of, of the mental health of politicians being up for debate. Uh, probably the most famous example is in 1964 when uh, Barry Goldwater is running for president on the Republican ticket. Uh, and there was a famous magazine cover which read that, quote, 1,198 psychiatrists say Goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president. And one of them in the accompanying ad said that he was a dangerous lunatic. So there was a question about his mental health um, in that campaign. Uh, and Goldwater actually sued the magazine and, and won a settlement against them um, for, for, I guess, libel. And one of Goldwater's slogans in, in 64 was, mm -hmm. in your heart you know he's right, or in your guts you know he's right. right. I can't remember yeah. what it was. But, um, and, the, the, or, uh, and the response was, in your guts you know he's nuts. And so that was a... Um, the, the Goldwater case was interesting because the American Psychiatric Association uh, yeah, so a decade stayed later, out of politics since then, haven't they? Well, they, so a decade later, they, they, they made a rule that basically said that physician, psychiatrists should not comment on the mental health of politicians who they have not personally examined. And they should also not comment on the health of people they have personally examined because of patient confidentiality. Uh, so there's been an effort since then by 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 um, professional psychiatrists, not not to comment on the mental health of of candidates. Um, another well known example is in 1972, uh, where Thomas Eagleton was picked 
very briefly to be the vice presidential uh, nominee um, for George McGovern. George McGovern was having difficulty trying to find somebody to be uh, his running mate. He settles on Thomas Eagleton, uh, but then shortly after uh, picking Eagleton uh, at the Democratic Convention, uh, it gets revealed in the press that he, uh, Eagleton, had received electroshock shock therapy for depression uh, a decade earlier. Uh, and McGovern initially says that he backed Eagleton 1,000%. Um, but then later, Eagleton stepped aside because it was felt that, uh, that he was going to be a liability to the campaign. Um, and so I think there was a real stigma attached. Uh, and I think the, to mental health issues, and I think the Goldwater case reveals that, and the Eagleton case reveals that. Um, you know, and I think... You know, the, the questions about Fetterman are not necessarily mental health in the same sorts of ways because strokes are different no, than, right. than clinical depression. But I think they, they sort of both speak to these sort of uh, invisible injuries um, or invisible health issues that, that uh, are called into question. Well, they're called into question in part I think because people are anxious, in some mm. cases prejudiced, where issues of mental health are concerned. To but sure. there's also concern about cognitive issues in leaders. And so mm. we've seen this, you know, during the Trump presidency, it was very common for Trump's critics mm. to call into question his cognitive ability and to say that, he, or to try and diagnose him and say he had narcissistic Whatever. personality yeah. disorder, things like this. And similarly, it's a sort of staple uh, among right-wing criticisms of President Biden that he's cognitively impaired, that he's senile because of his age. Yes. And, and, and so, Dianne Feinstein has had similar kinds of claims made about her. So there's this issue, of, which has tied with ageism and tied in with, with um, obviously, discrimination. Uh, discrimination against mental health issues or various other cognitive oh, well, issues. Well, hold on, David. <laughs> So I think I, the point I wanted to make was that that um, using cognitive issues as a term of opprobrium mm. has become sort of uh, acceptable to both the left and the right, and I think that's illustrated by the responses to Trump mm. and 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 President Biden. Where Senator Feinstein's concerned, there does seem to be a lot of evidence that she might be cognitively impaired, and that's not necessarily discriminatory. Is it discriminatory to, to, to state that, or is it ageist to state that? She's 88 years old. There was a San Francisco Chronicle investigation into this demonstrating that hmm. she doesn't recognize members of Congress who she's known for a very, very long time, and she's not able to participate in policy discussions. I'm, I'm reflecting what's in the public record. I've never met Senator Feinstein, hmm. but... but uh, your response suggests we, we shouldn't be talking about this. Clearly, the cognitive abilities of politicians matter. Yes. I, but our ability to diagnose those things independently as non-physicians, um, I think, is profoundly limited. And so, that, you know, Sure. And... Um, we have lots of examples of, you know, one of the things that strikes me that makes thinking about the Senate in particular is that whatever 
limitations Fetterman has as a consequence of his, his stroke should not have any effect on his ability to be a good senator. That there's lots of... Uh, well, based on what you know, but we... You're they, not his doctor, well, you're to not a sure, neurologist. They've, well, to, but they've released... <laughs> They've released some cognitive I mean, assessments. It seems by, to me you're using evidence in a, in a so so you're buying the evidence where Federman's concerned, but not where Feinstein's concerned. Well, I've seen the medical statements from Federman's doctors. I've not seen anything from Feinstein's doctors. So I'm doing. The, okay. I think you've got a double standard here. Okay, but. <laughs> but we do have lots of examples of, of senators who are who in the past who have been very sick and therefore been unable to do their like physically unable to do their jobs, and stayed in the Senate. So Ted Kennedy was out of the Senate for months at one point when he was sick with cancer. John McCain, more recently, um, was you know, physically not in the Senate and not reporting for votes for, for many, many months until he came for that one final vote to, to preserve uh, Obamacare. Um, Arlen Specter, uh, likewise, spent many months outside, you know, outside of the Senate because of his health issues. Um, you see, it seems like it's a job that one can do um, and wrestle with, with health. Because I mean, I think one of the, you know, and, and, and uh, you don't have to be 100% uh, healthy to be an effective senator. I'm not sure these people were doing their jobs under those Well, so the, yeah, the question then is, what is the, the precedence for, 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 you know, should you as a member of the Senate resign if you have a health issue? And the, the precedent, at least recent precedent, suggests that, that if you want to stay in office, you should. However, hmm. isn't there a distinction or isn't a crucial distinction? There's a difference between being uh, having a health issue, which might be recoverable yes. uh, from, sorry, that's a terrible sentence, hmm. that happening after you've been elected while you're serving, hmm. as opposed to the decision voters need to make when hmm. they're choosing a senator yeah. Yeah. prior to election. Uh, because the way the Senate works, particularly with seniority, hmm. There's a real incentive for keeping your senator, sure. even if that senator is impaired, um, for your state and the interest of your state because mm -hmm. of the, the seniority system in the Senate. But is there should voters apply a different standard when they're choosing a yeah, senator? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because I think it does seem as if had, had hypothetically, had Fetterman gotten elected and then had the stroke, I think the, the rubric on these kinds of things would be entirely different. I mean, there's right. a great example of and that's great. I mean, all these examples are awful because of, of the health consequences. But uh, Tim Johnson, uh, who was a right. s from South Dakota, he had a, a very serious stroke uh, in 2007. He was basically out of uh, recovery for the next eight months and was very, able to do very, very little uh, of his work as a senator. But in 2008, he got reelected. Um, and so I think in that case, you know, the voters said, look, we, well, we want to keep... rest of you, that's... Yes. Maybe what they should have, and I realize, and we talked mm. about wholesale constitutional reform a mm. few weeks ago. Every state should have a third senator who's a sub. <laughs> <laughs> a kind of relief picture who can come in and, and, and spell the person when they, when, you know, Back. if they're ill, and then... And, then, and, and that's their job. They, they, don't get to, they don't get to keep it, keep the role. job, yeah. Um, well, what do you think of that? Uh, that's a fascinating idea. You know, there was a, I was in Louisiana for a while. There was a constitutional requirement that the governor, if he was 
left the state, had to give up power being governor to the lieutenant governor, and there was a, a sick governor in the 1870s who had to leave the state for months at a time, and so you had to this sort of, you know, the lieutenant governor fill in, and so there's no lieutenant governor position for, for senators in the same sort of way. Um, yeah, back, a backup senator. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly like a backup quarterback a in the NFL. They just as walk around with a clipboard and a baseball cap on waiting to get the call that probably won't come, but it might. Yeah, okay. So, so as long as you're not Lou Gehrig's uh, you know, backup, you're, you're okay. And it would probably be a pretty good gig. You know, no, for your CV or, yeah, but no, I'm just thinking about sort of different examples. I mean, obviously, we talked about Reagan. We talked about presidential health. Is that a different category of? Because obviously, the, the end of a second term, there there were questions about Reagan's capacity there. Sure, if only because the president of the United States can kill us all. Yes, and so, which is very different than what a senator. Did. Right. Um, so, so there is, of course, there's a difference there, mm. uh, and there are mechanisms in place. The Twenty Fifth Amendment, mm. which sure. been much spoken of, rarely used. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, so so there are clear mechanisms in place. There is a vice president. There are there are you know there 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 are kind of constitutional remedies for that. But I, I think a president is in a different situation. Mm. I also think that the. I think the distinction I've come to, and it, it, mm. it's resulted in this conversation, my conversations with you, David, are always enlightening to me, um, is there's a difference between what happens to somebody who might be afflicted or disabled while in office as opposed to when running mm. for office. So, I mean, uh, President Biden recently gave an interview and he was asked directly, I can't remember, I think it was on CBS, mm. but I, I apologize, um, about his age. And he defended himself pretty robustly. Mm. Um but that's clearly an issue for the voters to consider yeah. in 2024 and the run-up to 2024. So I think what you want in a democracy is the voters to express their will. I think we run up against two things. I, I think one is how much information mm. candidates, whether they're running for school board or president, are expected to divulge about their what's essentially a private matter, mm. uh, their health. And crucially, I think, Public attitudes are mixed on some of these questions and mm. probably not as um, tolerant as we would like where some some matters are concerned. And, I think and this is this is a challenge, but that's the that's democracy. Well, I mean, one of the I think you're right about that. I, mean, I think there is the question about... Well, the voters you know, of Pennsylvania are going to get to decide what they think about John Fetterman's condition. To be sure. And, and obviously that, that's not the only issue they're voting on. No, of on, course but, not. Um, you know, th th it does lead a question about, about what rights do voters have to this kind of, of private information about... Um, private health information about candidates. You know, in, in Fetterman's case, you know, the fact that he had a stroke and he had to stop campaigning for a bit and obviously his um, more recent um, public uh, appearances where he's used assisted uh, technologies, um, you know, he, he he's had to discuss his health, but most candidates don't necessarily have to discuss their health in the same kind of detail. You know, what access do should voters have? What obligations do candidates have? And that's a very tricky question. You know, in as much as you know, most of us keep our medical information 
moderately private and 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 don't discuss them in public and don't want our you know health to be a matter of public debate and aren't required to, to disclose to, to be sure rightly so um, you know and obviously there's been a huge amount of, of conversations about medical privacy in, in context with the with the pandemic uh, and what people are forced to disclose or not to disclose about their own health choices um, and there's a real danger of fueling ableism yes no, no, uh, as, no. A, as a consequence of this I, I am optimistic in as much as it seems as if there there's seems to be some kind of generational change with regard to particularly mental health issues and people's willingness to be uh, open publicly and and, and and discuss their their particular uh, mental health landscapes in a way that that would have been um, unacceptable and, and stigmatizing a generation ago yeah I agree with that and the other thing that I think is a cause for optimism is um, health is a nonpartisan issue so so uh, the examples we've given from contemporary mm. politics come from the left and right and from both parties and and you know uh, disability and uh, doesn't discriminate according to mm. one's party affiliation so this affects both sides equally and maybe that's cause for, yeah. for optimism too, too because I think that uh, um, people across the political spectrum and everybody well first of all all of us will be disabled someday. Mm. It's just a matter of when. But everybody knows somebody who's disabled as mm. well or has somebody who's disabled in their lives. And, and again, we will all be disabled mm. if we're not already. Uh, and, and so um, this is a nonpartisan issue. I think, I think that's right. And, and even if it gets loaded with partisan baggage at various points in time. Right. I mean, I think the Pennsylvania case is is partisan because it, it's it's concerns that election mm. and Dr. Oz is behind and this gives him an, an advantage etc cetera, etc cetera. Sure. but but that's and, that's and a local circumstance to be sure and, and I think the the pandemic as a mass disabling event I think will have consequences for 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 decades about about what the consequences of the of COVID will be for people's health um, and how that's going to shape politics for. Uh, the rest of our lifetime. So, so sorry, David. Just before we wrap up, I don't know which episode this is. We're over two hundred now. Right? Yes, I think you just said for the first time in two hundred plus episodes, I'm optimistic. I don't think I've ever heard you <laughs> utter that phrase. Okay. So- <laughs> yeah, Frank, you paint me as this this massive pessimist, and I don't think that I am. I'm just the past. Six years have not been great years for politics, for being uh, optimistic. I'm, I, I try to be optimistic about life in general and people that I know and about the future. For But reading the news every day does not help me in that respect. So maybe I'm channeling my negative feelings into this and, and allows me to live my life in a more Well, if that's way. the outcome, then yes. that's great. I'm so, dealing with my own mental health uh, things uh, here, trying to keep balance <laughs> yeah. with uh, stuff, right? And you're being bullied by me. Yeah, well, that's, that's publicly, what, so I apologize. What else is new? We have lots of evidence. It's well documented. <laughs> All right, time, time for last drop, Frank. What you got? I want to promote the, uh, our, uh, the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology's uh, annual Fennel Forum, which will be held on December 1st this year. The Fennel Forum, as may, some listeners will know that we, the, the school and the history department 
also has an annual Fennel Lecture. And a few years ago, we introduced the Fennel Forum to bring uh, former lecturers in, uh, into conversation with, with, with colleagues within the school on, on issues of import to the day. And so this year's Fennel Forum will be held on December 1st. And the theme is war and war in history. And obviously war is on our minds uh, these days. The speakers we've lined up are uh, Andrew Preston from Cambridge, Professor Andrew Preston, uh, who gave the Fennel Lecture a few years ago. Um, Phil O'Brien, Professor Phillips O'Brien from St. Andrews, who, if you, who you should follow on Twitter if you don't. He's very, very smart and very interesting, uh, particularly where the, the Ukraine war is concerned. And our colleague Wendy Ugolini uh, within the School of Dr. Ugolini within the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology, and Wendy's an expert on Britain and the home front during the Second World War. And one of our PhD students, uh, Kristen Blackstone, who writes about morale in war uh, during the 18th century in particular, and has a lectureship at the University of Salford. And they will be in conversation on December 1st. Uh, it's after 5 p.m. We will I will share the precise details uh, with you. You can attend in person if you're in Edinburgh, uh, or you will be able to attend online. So I will awesome. share the details, but I just want to it's a, issue a save the date to people. for Listeners, you are among the first people to know about the, the details of this event, so you know, you are in, in early. Yes, you are. You're, 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 you're privileged you're, access. Yeah, early access. Exactly. So what about you, David? What uh, do you have? Okay, so I got, I got two things. First, I want to congratulate um, one of our former PhD students, Catherine Bateson, who, listeners may know, does our credits at the end of the episodes uh, that she recorded uh, years, years ago, years ago <laughs> when, when she was still a PhD student. But she has published... Uh, her first book, Irish American Civil War Songs, Identity, Loyalty, and Nationhood, uh, just came out, I, I guess, a, a few weeks ago. Oh, congratulations, Kevin. Yes, and so that's a big news. Everyone should buy a copy for, the, for themselves and their family members. Christmas is coming up. All other kinds of good stuff. Um, and the second is a shout-out about a, a new initiative the Society of Civil War Historians is doing. So if you are a Civil War historian listening or a Civil War-adjacent historian listening, they're having a new grant that they are uh, um, debuting this year, uh, $5,000 to sponsor some kind of Civil War-related event, outreach, program, uh, symposium, workshop, it's intended to sort of broaden the reach of the organization to, to uh, the Civil War writ large. So if you are thinking about organizing something and say, geez, if only I had $5,000, this could be amazing, um, they've got an application coming out to, to try to sort of reach new audiences uh, in Civil War studies. Excellent. Cool. Until next week, Frank. Great to see Cheers. you again, David. Yes, good to see you again. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 